Good morning. Good morning. If you have your Bible, open to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Last week we uh, began uh, a new series in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm really excited about it, but before we, uh, before we get into that a little bit, I want to tell you about something coming up. Now it's a little ways down the road, but I think you'll be excited about it. Uh, I'm going to have to be out of town on May the 8th. Hopefully that's not what you're excited about. But what there is to be excited about is that uh, Tim Henkel is going to be speaking that morning. and he's Yeah, yes. Hey, Tim, enjoy that. I only got that one time since I've been here. So, you know, that was like, uh, he might come back. Yeah, but that was like eight years ago. So anyway, yeah, so enjoy that now. Uh, but uh, yeah, Tim has agreed to, uh, to speak for me. On, uh, on May the 8th, and uh, I wish I could be here to hear it because I very, enjoy, I very much enjoy uh, Tim's presentation. I know that's going to be really, really good, uh, and I know you'll be blessed by that. So you can go ahead and mark that down on your calendar. So now we're into Matthew, and last week, you know, we kind of kicked this thing off, and we did some, some introductory um, uh, material on it, and I want to review that for just a few minutes before we really get into the, the meat of of this thing. We said that you can divide the book of Matthew into lots of sections. You know, there's many different ways that you can divide the book of Matthew, but the approach that we're going to take is to break it into three sections. Those are a little bit more manageable than trying to keep up with six or seven or however many. It's easier to just look at it in three fairly large chunks. And so we said the first one starts in chapter one and runs all the way out through. Uh, through chapter 4, and it is the unveiling of Jesus. And as we talked about last week, we looked at the, the different points of view about who Jesus is. Matthew is put in front of us all of these characters in this first section who have a particular point of view of who they believe Jesus is. Okay, you know, there's, uh, there's the angel Gabriel, uh, there's, uh, there's, there's Joseph, there's Mary, uh, there are the Magi, there is King Herod, there is John the Baptist, and there is God. And there are others as we go through the book. We even looked ahead at to, uh, what the religious leader's point of view is about Jesus. But it's in this first major section that we're actually not going to spend a whole lot of time in. It's in this first major section that Matthew is unveiling the identity of Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the, the Son of God. And next week, next week we're going to wrap up that first major section. We're not going to spend a lot of time in chapter 4 because uh, I just touched on chapter 4 back a couple of months ago during our Twisted series. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but I am going to mention it briefly. But next week we're going to kind of wrap up the first section and then jump into the second one which begins in the middle of 17 and runs all the way out through chapter 16, which is the public ministry of Jesus. This is where He is out teaching and where He is out preaching. And we're going to spend some significant time looking at what is probably known as the greatest sermon in the world. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said so many good things in that sermon. He said so many very difficult and, and challenging things Things, but I shared with Tommy and Jeffrey on, on Friday in, in, uh, in our meeting. I said, you know, as I've been reading this sermon and been looking at it, uh, and I'm thinking about our theme, you know, our theme comes leaping out of the text as you look at those Beatitudes and you realize those have to do with how we need to live our lives. If we're going to grow inwardly, that has to become our attitude. Okay, that's the attitudes we have to have. But not only that, you know, the sermon advances, it progresses, and Jesus starts saying, look, this is how you need to behave. This is how you need to act. This is how you need to pray. These are the things that you need to do. And we realize He's showing us how to grow outwardly. But to grow outwardly, you've got to grow inwardly first. And it's as we grow in and as we grow out, then we grow together. And so I'm really excited about it. We're going we're gonna to break down each of those ten, uh, uh, each of those Beatitudes uh, week by week, and that'll take us a couple of months to work through those, but I'm really excited about what is there and about what we're going to be looking at. It's going to be really good. Next Sunday, I'm going to do kind of an overview of the Beatitudes. That sermon's called First Words, 
And it's kind of the first hundred words or so that Jesus spoke to His disciples and the importance of those first words. And So I hope you'll be back next Sunday if you can to, uh, to look at those. But that's in, the, that's in the public ministry of Jesus. The third and the final major section starts mid-chapter 16 and runs all the way out through the rest of the book. And it's the journey to Jerusalem. It is where Jesus begins heading toward the cross. He begins working His way there. And as we said last week, there are a couple of markers that you can look for that will indicate when you're moving from, from one section to another. And it's, you know, it's these, uh, these, these from that time on statements. So the first one comes in, uh, in 4.17 that says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. Okay, his identity has been established. They know who he is. But from this time on, and this comes, you know, this comes after the temptation out in the wilderness, the, the showdown with Satan, after he's been tended to by the angels and he's kind of recovered from that, from this time on, he began to teach. He began to heal. And this is where, the, where you read about a lot of the miracles and you read the, the teachings, the Sermon on the Mount. This is where you get into chapter 13 and it's got all the different kingdom parables that, that Jesus lays out for us. And then the next one in 1621 says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain. And it's at that point where He's saying, okay, now I'm going to Jerusalem. This is where the, the cross is casting a long shadow and for several months, Jesus is making His way toward Jerusalem where His life on earth will culminate at the cross where He will be killed. And so, from that time on, Jesus began to explain that He would be handed over to sinful men who would, who would, put, him, who would put Him to death. And so that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the, the sections that we, we talked about. And we said last week that the purpose of Matthew's Gospel is to identify Jesus as the Messiah. And so, maybe you're here this morning, and you're not sure that Jesus is the Messiah, okay? And if you are, that's fine, and I get that, okay? There are times in my life where I have wondered that as well, but we're going to let God, through His Word, answer that for us and let Him reveal that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. This is the message that, that Matthew is desperately wanting to get across. And then last Sunday, you know, we only looked at one verse in the whole time that I was up talking. We only looked at one verse of Scripture because we had to spend some time kind of setting up the series and where we're going. But as I said last week, I think it is the key verse of this series. And we're going to hit it again today. It's at the, the very end of chapter 3. It's verse 17. And it's here where we see God's point of view. He says, This is my Son, whom I love. With Him, with Him I am well pleased. And it's right there that, <clears throat> that we get the, the, the point of view of God the Father. We know what He thinks about, about His Son, Jesus. So now, let's get into this and let, let's, let's talk about identity. Because identity is something that's, that's very important, yes or no? Our identity is very important because it is uh, who we are. It's how people know about us. It's how we know where we came from. And in this day and age, identity is so important to protect, right? I mean, over the last several years, especially I think about 10 years ago, there was just, you know, we, we started hearing all about online identity fraud. Okay, nothing was taking place before then, but it seemed like it really got raised to a fever pitch about 10 years ago. And it was, you know, you'd put your stuff online or you put your credit card out there, your email address or... You know, you sign up for something that you, maybe you weren't thinking about, and all of a sudden, people had your credit card number. Okay, people had your bank account number. People had your email addresses, and, and, and your, your money starts disappearing, or you get all these credit card debts racked up, and people's identity was being stolen from them online, virtually stealing their identity. And people were signing up for other credit cards in people's names that did not belong to them. They were making purchases and making investments and taking money and, and, and doing all of these things with someone else's identity. And so this is when these 
these other online corporations that protect identity, like LifeLock and things like that, kind of came into existence because we have to protect those things. Yes or no? We have to protect our identity. We have to protect who, who we are. And so that's what we're going to talk about. Identity is so important because it tells people, it tells people about ourselves. And as we get into to this chapter, there is a lot that happens. There are two kind of major things that happens. We're going to begin to see the first elements of just a little bit of conflict. Remember last week how we said that that's kind of the, uh, a theme that we're going to see as we move through the book? That it's going to be one of the, the vehicles that sort of drives the narrative as we move through this. This conflict that Jesus has with these religious leaders that is going to push the story along all the way to, to the cross in about a, a, a three-year time span. Okay, and it's going to be that, that, that conflict that is advancing the story from point A to, to point B. But it's, it's, uh, as we're, we're, we're looking at that, we're going to see Jesus and John come into the scene, and John's going to have this, this encounter. And it's as John is, is talking, in this first section we're going to read today, he lays out his point of view and his identity about who Jesus is. So let's start reading together. Chapter 3, uh, verse 1. We'll read all the way down to uh, verse 12. I'll make a couple of comments along the way and then we'll add some more stuff in just a few minutes. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. John himself had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now then, I don't know this, I don't have any research on this, I can't find this out, but I'm pretty sure that's Tupelo honey. Okay, because that's like the best honey in the world. Okay, and I don't have anything to back that up, but that's at least my guess. That it's probably wild Tupelo honey that, that only grows in like North Florida, but somehow it's over there out in the wilderness of Judea. You know, God can work that out. But you have John, this kind of this crazy nomadic guy. He's this prophet who, who lives out in the desert and he wears these animal skins. And his, you know, he had this long, crazy looking beard. And, you know, people with long beards are just, you know, you just kind of worry about them you know fortunately I don't have one um, but you, you know you, you just kind of you know he's just kind of out there just living in the wilderness and he his food is like like bugs which you know I you know I, I don't understand that you know I don't understand eating locusts I guess for the protein Bear Grylls would be really happy with him but he's eating bugs and can you imagine the little little antennae getting stuck in his teeth and the legs you know that'd be kind of gross picking those things out but he eats he eats bugs and he eats wild Honey, and he's this wild prophet whose job is to make way the path for Jesus. You know, he's the forerunner. Okay? You know, he's prophesied years ago. You read about him in the book of, the book of Malachi and uh, in, in other places. And his job is to set the stage for Jesus. He's kind of the advance man for Jesus. And so he's out there preparing the way, and people are, are enthralled by this guy. And it says in verse 5, the people, then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and the vicinity of the Jordan were flocking to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to the place of his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? There are some versions that say that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming out to John for baptism. That's just the way they've chosen to translate it, but that's not the most accurate. And I think John's response to them kind of lets us know. You know, why are these guys, why are these religious leaders coming out to John? Okay, it's, it's likely 
That they are not there to affirm his ministry. Okay? Because he's about the exact opposite of anything they want to be associated with. You know, he's this wild guy. He, you know, his hair is grown out of control. He eats weird things. Okay? And he preaches in this, this kind of this fiery way and he's announcing the Messiah. Okay? They probably don't want a whole lot to do with him. But their suspicions are probably raised because all of their people are going out there. And they're being baptized by this crazy, wild, desert prophet. And so I imagine is that they want to go out there to sort of check on things. To see how he's doing. To see what his message is. To see what he is saying. And John sees them. And he knows their hearts. The Holy Spirit leads him that way. And, and how do we know that? Because you go back and you read the prophecies about John and it says that while he was a baby, while he was a child, the Holy Spirit was with him. And so the Holy Spirit leads him to know the hearts of these people who are coming out to them. And he says, you brood of vipers. And he insults them. He knows their hearts and he's saying, you know, you're, you're, you're like snakes. You're these, these predatory poisonous false prophets. You know, it's the false prophets. And this is that, that first hint of the conflict where he is addressing these, these religious leaders, the elite, the people who are supposed to know the story, and he calls them out. You're a brood of vipers. You're a pack of snakes. And you're leading people away. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And there's a, there's a, that's a good place for us to, to just, just pause for a minute and think about. Okay? Because if, if we are going to be the followers of Christ, then repentance is a pretty big deal. Yes or no? Okay, repentance is a big deal. What is repentance? Okay? You know, some people say, let's just to, to kind of illustrate it like this, you know, we're driving on a cliff and we get to the edge right here and, okay, well, I turn around and I start going the other way. And some people say that's what repentance is, but that's, that's not really it. Okay? Repentance is a, a change of heart that brings about a, a change of action. Does that make sense? And you've heard me use the, the, the metaphor before of, you know, you come over to my house in the, in the summertime when it's really hot, and, and for whatever reason you're working in my yard and I'm not. But you come into my carport and there's this glass of clear liquid and man, you're sweating and you're hot and sweaty and covered in grass clippings or whatever it might be and you snatch that up and I take it out of your hand and put it down and tell you you can't have it. You know, all I've done is changed your actions. Okay, I haven't changed your heart yet. Okay, well, you still want that. Okay, same scenario, you come in, you snatch that up, you go to drink it, I snatch it back and put it down and I say that's hydrochloric acid. You're going to back away from it pretty quick, right? Your heart has changed. You no longer want that. Okay, well, that's kind of what repentance is. Okay, it's a change of heart that leads to a change of action. It's not just simply a change of direction. It's not simply, you know, turning around and going the other way. Now, that's part of it, but there's more to it. It's got to be, uh, you know, it's got to be with our heart. And so when John sees these guys coming to him, he's saying, hey, look, you pack of snakes, you need to repent. And when you repent, your life is going to start producing the kind of fruit that God wants you to produce. Okay, and as, as I read that verse this week, again, our theme comes leaping off the page of growing in, growing out, growing together. You see, if we are, if we are repenting of our sins, if we're having a change of heart that leads to a change of action, that means we're, working, we're being worked on on the inside, right? Okay, so... Repentance should lead to inward growth. Are you with me? Yes or no? Repentance leads to inward growth that produces an outward display of fruit. Does that make sense? Repentance is inward growth that should lead or should produce an outward display of fruit. This is what he's telling these guys. Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. Okay, later on, he's going to talk about fruit. He's going to say, you'll recognize these false prophets by their fruit. 
Well, guess what? That's the same for us. People will recognize whether we are followers of Christ by the fruit that we produce. Yes or no? So what if we're producing the fruits of lying and gossiping and slander and being argumentative all the time? There's a title for that. Snake. False prophet. You see that? We ourselves can become the false prophets that John is encountering right here. By our witness. By the way we live our lives. If we're living one way in here and then go out there and live a completely different way, opposite of anything that goes on here, we're hypocrites. We're living a hypocritical lifestyle. We are becoming, in essence, false prophets. So if I'm not the kind of spouse that God calls me to be, and it looks great in here and we come in and see my family and we're great and nice and good, but at home I'm running them down, guess what? I'm being a false prophet. Okay, My family is not seeing the outward fruit that I should be producing. I'm a false prophet. Okay, I come in here and I speak the truth of God, but yet I go out there and I tell lies and I spread gossip Monday through Saturday. I am a false prophet. You see what I'm saying? Okay, I come in here and I want to live pure, but I get out there and I have a relationship that is anything but pure. And people know about it. I am a false prophet. We can find ourselves in the same place as the religious leaders. You know, it's living one way on Sunday and living another way the rest of the week, like heaven on Sunday and hell every other day. Okay? That makes us, in some sense, that makes us, that makes us false prophets. And so this is, I mean, that, I mean, that verse right there, those two verses, uh, or those, those, those sentences there in, in 7 and 8, those are good to circle because that's, I mean, that's, that's a reminder of what our theme should look like. If we're going to grow in, if we're going to grow out, if we're going to grow together, we have, to, we have to be consistent in our repentance, in our coming back to God. God, I blew it again. Here's my life. Please take me back. Okay? Repentance is not a one and done thing. Repentance is an over and over and over again process. And I'm going to tell you something. I have to do it all the stinking time. All the live long day, I need repentance. I need the grace that Tim read to us about just a little while ago. Every single day in my life. And I'm not the only one. You do too. Repentance is an ongoing thing. And if it's an ongoing thing, it goes to helping produce fruit that is displayed outwardly. Okay? And we're eventually, we're going to get to the fruits. Okay? We're going to get to the fruit because Jesus is going to say, He's going to point out these guys. He says, you'll recognize them. He's going to call them wolves. You'll recognize those wolves by their, by their fruit. And we could hold up there the rest of the day. Let's move on. He says, and don't presume to say to yourselves, and this is important because he's getting into identity right here. Don't presume to say to yourselves, religious leaders, that we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children of Abraham out of these rocks. Even now the axe is ready to strike the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good what? What? Say it loud. Good what? Fruit. Will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Man, that reads, I mean, that's John 15 right there. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those that don't produce fruit are what? They're going to be cut off, they're going to be thrown into the fire. He's talking about discipline there. Okay, but this is what, what, what John is saying is what Jesus is going to be saying eventually. And then right in here, he gets into his identity. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is coming after me is more powerful than I I'm not worthy to take off his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff 
will be burned up with a fire that never goes out. Okay, he's talking about judgment right here. Okay, he's saying there's one coming that's more powerful than I, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Okay, we wonder, what, what is he talking about? Okay, well, he's, he's talking about us. Okay, those who receive Christ as their Savior, who, who accept who Jesus is, those who receive the blessing, or those who, who understand who Jesus is, receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit that comes along with baptism that we read about in Acts chapter 2. Okay, you'll be baptized, you'll have that gift of the Holy Spirit You'll be brought into the kingdom of God. But the other side of the coin is those who reject Jesus, you've got a baptism of fire coming. And we understand what that's about. It's basically what Jesus is going to say later on down the road when He's going to say, you've got to pick a side. Because Jesus is going to be accused of things. He's going to be accused of, of doing these miracles that He's doing by the power of Satan. And, and Jesus is going to say, you can't serve both you know, both Satan and the world. You can't serve God and Satan. Satan does not drive out demons by the power of demons. Okay? And he's going to say, you have to pick a side. You're either going to be in my kingdom or you're going to be in the kingdom of Satan. There's no sitting on the fence. There's no neutral ground. You're either in this one or you're in this one. Pick a side. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like the, the, the book of Revelation. You know? God wins... Pick a side. Don't be stupid. That's the whole point of the book of Revelation right there in three little sentences. It's the same way right here. God wins. Pick a side. Don't be stupid. Don't choose the wrong side. But See, that's the thing. We have the choice. Because God is a God of free will. He's not going to force us to love Him. He's not going to force us to choose Him. And what, what John is telling these, these religious leaders is the same thing. You know, it's for us too. We can choose the baptism with the Holy Spirit or we can choose the baptism of fire. It is completely up to us which one, which one, we, which one we choose. And then he's talking about, the, you know, he gives this kind of this, this parable about, the, uh, about these farmers and the way they did it in the ancient days is, you know, they gather the grain and it'd be kind of a, there'd be like a, like a low wall like this one right here, and there'd be a pile of grain, and they had this, this winnowing fork, and they would scoop it up, and they'd kind of throw it in the air, and the wind would separate the hull from the grain because it, it was much lighter. So the, the hull would, would blow over that way on that side of the wall, and the grain would fall down right here. They'd collect the grain on, off the threshing floor. Okay? But all the, the hull, the chaff that blew over, way, that blew over the wall, They'd sweep that up, they'd throw it on the fire, they'd burn it because it was worthless. It was not useful for anything. Okay, and that's what, what Jesus is saying. You can choose whatever, or, or John is saying, you choose whatever you want. You can choose a baptism of the Holy Spirit, you can choose a baptism with fire, but here's the end results of those things. One's going to be harvested, one's going to be burned up. Okay, he's talking about judgment. You see why they're a little leery of this guy? Because he is a fiery compassionate preacher. And he's going after these guys. He doesn't even go with the niceties like, hey, nice robe. Like your sandals. Cool camel. He just goes right after them. Snake! Snake! Viper! You're leading people away. And if our life, if our life is not consistent and full of repentance, we face that same thing of being false prophets. I don't want to be a false prophet. I have been a false prophet. I will probably be one again at some point in the future. I know that. But repentance always brings me back. That's what repentance does. That's why it's, it's so important. Man, this message has got, this text has so much stuff in it. Alright. So John is... I mean, he's, God has, has, has taken them on. Or, or John has, has taken them on. And it's at this point that Jesus shows up on the scene. Now, it's been baby Jesus up to this point, or two-year-old and under Jesus. Okay, so toddler Jesus and, and baby Jesus. You know, you wonder what toddler Jesus was like. 
Have you seen the cartoon where, um, you know, Jesus, he's a toddler and his mom's trying to put him in the bathtub and he's standing on top of the water? Have you seen that one? I <laughs> don't wonder about those. But right here, we've got adult Jesus. Okay, we have Jesus at 30 years old, and 30 years old is a significant date, not because I'm 10 years away from it and I wish I was back there, but it's a significant in, in ministry for a, a rabbi. Okay, so let's read, the, let's read the rest of this right here, uh, verse 13. Then Jesus came to Galilee, to John at the Jordan, to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him saying, I need to be baptized by you, yet you come to me. That text has always just mesmerized me. Jesus answered him, Allow it for now, because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now then, I used to think, and I've probably taught before, maybe even have taught you, that that us there was talking about the Godhead. I don't think that anymore. I think it's talking about him and John. And that their ministry is, is connected. And John, you've paved the way Okay, you've set the stage for me to be here. You played a huge part in the salvation of mankind. And so we've got to do this. It says, then, then he allowed him to be baptized. After Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming down on him. And here's our verse right here, our theme verse. And there came a, ver- a, a voice from heaven This is my son, my beloved son. In him I am am well pleased. Now then, this this is so important what happens right here. Okay? You have the dove descending. You have God speaking. Jesus Christ has been baptized by John. Okay, He comes to John, requests baptism. John knows who he is. He's already, he's already laid it out. He's already identified. He's already identified who he is. That you're the, the, the Son of God. I've got a slide. One is coming more powerful than I. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He is the one that will burn up the chaff with fire that, that never goes out. This is the Son of God. And He's coming to me, asking me to baptize Him. And John realized, wait a minute, this isn't right. If anybody should be baptized, it should be me. John recognizes, and we see John's humility in this, that he's got to step away so that Jesus can go forward. You know, it's not a power struggle like you see so often in churches and corporations and things like that where people... Are, are, are there temporarily and they've got a little bit of authority and then somebody else gets hired or brought in and that person doesn't want to give up that authority so you have a church split or something like that. John wasn't about that. He was about the kingdom of God and he had to step away. He had to become lesser so that Jesus could come forward and become the greater one. And so he, he does this. And he says, I, I, I am the one that, I'm the one that needs to be baptized. Jesus is getting ready to begin His public ministry. He's 30 years old. A rabbi did not begin public ministry until the age of 30. And in order for a rabbi to begin public ministry, he had to have two witnesses that would vouch for him or testify for him. Okay, That had spent time with this student, that had seen him grow, that knew their character, knew their life. And you had to have two voices that were there saying... He's okay. He can teach. He is going to take on my yoke. And the yoke is the, the teaching. Okay, remember Jesus says in Matthew eleven, twenty-eight through 30, my burden is easy, my, my yoke is light. He's talking about his teaching. Okay, where the religious leaders, they laid on these heavy yokes that were you know, drowning people. They couldn't live. Okay, Jesus is baptized. And what happens? You have the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. And then you have God speaking from the heavens. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. There's your two witnesses right there confirming Jesus' ministry as he's getting ready to go in and become this rabbi. As he's getting ready to go and begin his 
begin his, his teaching career. I'm saying it's, it's, it's powerful. But that, that's not the only thing that, that, that takes place there. Ken and I were, were, were talking about this, this, uh, this last Sunday. This is God's action in, in 317. It's here that God personally enters the story and He declares Jesus to be the Son that He loves. That's what God does. A word from God has not been heard in years, in generations, in centuries. You haven't heard from Him in over 400 years. Yet at the baptism of Jesus, God speaks from the heavens. God personally enters the story. He says, He's mine. He is my Son. He identifies Him as His Son. And I am pleased with Him and what He's doing. But that's not the only thing that happens. Watch this. Earl Lavender says, this happens at our baptism too. The heavens open. No barrier stands between us. God says, you are my son. You are my daughter whom I love. And am well pleased. We're baptized. And God says, Amanda, you're, you're my daughter. And I love you and I'm pleased with you. Adam, you're my son. And I love you and I'm pleased with you. You see what God is saying? He's giving us our identity as His sons and daughters. You are mine. And I'm so proud of you. I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased with you. God identifies us as His children through baptism. But you read this story and there's questions that come to mind. I mean, my, my question, probably like yours, is the same as John's. Jesus comes out to the desert for baptism. The question is this. Did Jesus need to be baptized? Okay, you know, Lots of reasons why we're baptized. The main reason we think of is salvation. Okay, but it also brings us into the kingdom, you know, fulfillment, um, uh, gift of the Holy Spirit, you know, empowerment by the Spirit, all of those different things, uh, spreading the word, advancing the kingdom, all those. Those are lots of reasons why we're baptized. The main one we think about is you know salvation. Okay, so that notwithstanding, did Jesus need to be baptized? No. He absolutely did not need to be baptized. Well, that begs another question. If not, why did He do it? Have you ever pondered that? Have you ever come up with an answer? If you do, tell me. But I've wondered that. Why, why if He did not need this, why did he do it? Scholar Leon Morris says this. He says, Jesus might well have been up there in front, standing with John and calling on sinners to repent. I think that's what John wanted. Jesus comes out there, and Jesus, if anybody could have been calling people to repent, it's the Son of God, right? Okay? He very easily could have said, Hey, John, I'm here. I got it. I'm here. I'll take over. Repent, people. Repent. I see what you've been doing. Okay? I see what you've been doing. I've been looking at your, your, your Facebook profiles. Okay? I see you've been talking to them Jew girls. Okay? I see what you've been saying. Alright? Repent. But Jesus didn't do that. John didn't want to baptize Jesus, but Jesus insisted that John baptize him. Why does Jesus come out there? So Leon says, if anybody could have been standing up there with John, it's Jesus, but instead, He was down there with the sinners. With us. 
affirming his solidarity with them, making himself one with them in the process of the salvation that he would accomplish in due course. That's why. Jesus didn't have to be baptized, but he did it so that he could establish a connection with us. Isn't that powerful? He establishes that, that, that connection with humanity. So that leads us to our, to our growth point of the morning. It's simply, it's this, it's kind of a two-part thing. In baptism, Jesus identifies with the sinful humanity that he came to save. He did exactly what we need to do. Okay, so he identifies with us. He didn't stand above us. He joined us where we are. Okay, you know, that's John 1 fulfilled right there. Okay, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and blood and took up residence among us. Heaven left earth. Remember the uh, 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 riches to rags? Sermon back from Christmas, this is it right here. Okay, we see it fulfilled in the baptism of Jesus. He didn't need to be baptized, but he chose to be baptized so that he could connect with humanity who needed to be baptized. You see it? So it's in his baptism, Jesus identifies with the sinful humanity that he has come to save. And then here's the other half of it sinful humanity connects with Jesus' saving power through baptism. It's where we come into Jesus, where we come into to new life, where we experience that, that, that resurrection life through Jesus. And it's when, you know, when we, and I could spend a lot of time on that. But it's where we find life. You know, You'll, you'll hear people say uh, sometimes that, 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 that baptism is, is, is unnecessary. And, I, and I've heard that. But it's, it's very important. It's so important that all four writers of the gospel mention it in some way, shape, or form. Okay, now then, there are some stories that are only in Luke. There are stories that are exclusive to Luke. Okay, you got the prologue of John, which is not like any other gospel writer. Okay, you got... Mark who wrote first and Matthew, you know, they kind of team up on some things. Matthew and Luke kind of team up on some things, telling different ends of the story. But one thing you have in common with all four stories is that in some way, shape, or form, they talk about the baptism of Jesus. They talk about it because it was important. They want us to know about it. Now then, I, you know, and I understand where that comes from, where it's not necessary. I understand that, you know, Romans and confess and you'll be saved and all that. And I, and I don't have time to unpack that this morning because we're way over our time. And if you want more information for that, I'll be glad to talk with you on it. I'll be glad to sit down and unpack it. Or you can go and see our AV people and ask for uh, a sermon in a series called The Cross in the Empty Tomb, Why We Baptize. There's two of those. And I unpack those reasons why it's necessary in that, and I deal with those Romans verses. So if you're interested in that, go see them. They'll hook you up with those. Or find me, and I'll be glad to sit down and talk with you. But the reason why Jesus did it is He did it to set an example for us. Okay? He, he modeled it for His people. You with me? He modeled it for us. Now then, Jesus is our example, yes or no? Okay, now you have to respond to me on these. Jesus is our example, yes or no? We are to follow Jesus, yes or no? If we believe He's the Son of God. Now, if you don't, that's a different story. Okay, But if you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then we are to follow Him. Well, here's the thing. If we follow Christ, then we know... If we follow Christ, then we know that Jesus said in both Matthew 16 and Luke 9, Jesus said, take up your cross and what? Follow me. 
Okay, he says that in Matthew chapter 16. He says it in Luke 9.23. But in Luke 9.23, Luke adds the word daily, meaning you, you have a sacrifice daily to follow me. Okay, so if we follow Christ, we know that Jesus tells us to take up a cross and follow him. The other thing about Jesus is he never asks us to do anything that he hasn't himself already done. Okay? He doesn't ask us to do anything that he has not done. If he tells us to take up a cross and follow him, then part of that journey is following him down into the waters of baptism. If Jesus thought it was so important, if Jesus, whom we follow, who did not need it, thought it was so important that all the gospel writers write about it, and you read about it all through the book of Acts and other places in the New Testament, why would we think that it's not necessary? I mean, if we're going to follow Jesus, that means we're going to do what Jesus said, right? The end of Matthew, what did Jesus say? Go into all the world, make disciples, and what? Baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the, the Holy Spirit. That's basically the last thing he told them before he went back up to heaven. If Jesus thought it was important, important enough to do it when he didn't need it, well, we better make sure we do it when we know we need it. Does that make sense? Because it's there that we connect with Jesus. It's in that death, that burial. I mean, we know he was dead, he was buried, he was raised to life. It's in baptism that, you know, the water, we talk about the water that's on the other side of this wall right here. Okay, we call it a, a watery grave or whatever you want to call it. Before we enter that water, we've confessed that Jesus is Lord. And that's part of the salvation process. Okay, confessing Jesus is a part of it. But I'm not a, I'm, I don't like the whole steps thing because if once I get to that step, why do I need to take another step? You know what I'm saying? It's like interlocking circles, okay? Or like a casserole of salvation. You've got to have everything in there, okay? That's the way I like to think of it. Well, that got me in a lot of trouble at church camp one year. People writing, kids writing, casserole of salvation. Well, that got me in trouble with the directors until I explained it, then they wanted some casserole. All right. We've confessed Jesus. This is part of the process. But we're dead in our sins. We go down into the water, to the grave. Just as Jesus was buried in the grave. We connect with Jesus' salvation power. When we come up out of that water, we're raised to what we say new life, newness of life, whatever you want to say. We participate, we experience death, burial, and resurrection in baptism. And if it was important enough for Jesus to do it when He didn't have to do it, then you can bet your last dollar it's important that we do it. Because we need it. Okay? We need it. And it's just, you know, I don't, I don't know that I've ever thought of it in this way until I was able to look at this text and consider everything that was going on there. You see, it, but it's in baptism. At Jesus' baptism, what did God do? He established Jesus' identity as his son. It's in baptism that our identity is established as well. That's my son. That's my daughter. That's Jalbert. That's my, that's my son. And in him I am well pleased. Our identity is established then. So it's important. In baptism, Jesus identifies with the sinful humanity that he came to save. Sinful humanity connects with Jesus' saving power through baptism. It's, it's, to me, it's that simple. I know there's questions about it, and I get that. But when I look at the story of Jesus, and if I'm trying to follow Jesus, then I'm always going to ask, or I've always, there's always a question in front of me, 
What is Jesus going to do? Jesus is going to go to the cross and Jesus say, hey, if you're going to follow me, you're going with me. Take up your cross and follow me. And if I'm going to follow Jesus, guess what? That means I've got to pick up the cross and follow him wherever he goes. Our identity is so important. We can lose our earthly identity. Thieves can steal it all the time. But our eternal identity can never be taken from us. But it only comes when we give our lives to Jesus. Now I've gone way over again, and I'm going to do my best to trim these things down, I promise. But it's so important that I didn't want to break this one up. Jesus is the Messiah. If we want to follow after Jesus, we have to take up a cross and follow him through the waters of baptism and through the valley of the shadow of death all the way to a cross and then on to eternity with him in heaven. But it's only when we choose Jesus. If you've never chosen Jesus, why not do that today? Why not make that first thing on your list? Because it's so important. Choose Jesus. If you need to repent like we've talked about, do it. We all have to. We all have to repent. Do it. But don't go away in a state, in a state of mind or whatever it is, carrying a burden that Jesus never intended for you to carry out of here. Come and come and, and lay it at the cross. Because the Lamb of God is worthy. It's when we recognize what Jesus offers us that we're able to thank God for a crucifixion tool like the cross. That only comes when we realize who Jesus is. If we can help you, if we can pray for you, Tommy will be down front to receive your responses. Don't wait. Come while we stand and while we sing. Thank you for the cross.